Well, welcome to Freedom in Christ, session nine. Now, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, has always been one of my favourite passages. Let me read it to you, and perhaps you'll see why. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Pretty good, huh? Well, when I was a teenager, just become a Christian, I used to quote this Bible reference in Christmas cards that I sent to the other young people in my church group. Now, you need to know that handwriting has never been a strong point. The other thing to note is that a lot of young people have never heard of a book in the Bible called Habakkuk. So I now realise. So when I scrawled, after, you know, Steve and then Hab 3, 17-18, they usually read it as Heb 3, 17, 18. Slightly, but actually quite significantly different. And so anyone who bothered looking up the passage that they thought I was referring to in the book of Hebrews would read this. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? <laughs> was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So apparently this had happened to a lot of people until one courageous young lady took me aside and asked me what sin I thought she'd committed. <laughs> I've discovered that it's really easy to go through life giving offence to people and to be blissfully unaware of it. In this session, we're going to consider how God wants us to relate to people and why it's so crucial that we do it the way he wants us to. Now... If you could go to Jesus and ask him to pray to the Father on your behalf for one thing, what would that one thing be? What would you ask him to pray for you? Well, in the Gospels, there is an occasion where Jesus prayed a prayer specifically for you and for me. It was shortly before he went to the cross, and just before that, he's been praying for his disciples, the ones who were with him on earth, and this is what he says next. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? Us, right? What does he pray? That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the one thing that Jesus, in his wisdom, decided to pray for you and me and every other Christian is that we would be one. And I take from that that we would be genuinely united at a heart level. The strange thing to me, if you think about it, is that that isn't even a prayer that God can answer. What, Steve? You're saying God just can't do anything he chooses? Well, in his wisdom and in his humility, God has given every human being personal responsibility for the choices we make. Of course, he could have made us like robots. 
so that if we wanted to criticise what someone else believes or we wanted to lash out against them in anger, we'd find that we just couldn't do it. God would somehow stop us. But he hasn't done that. Instead, he has chosen to give us free will. So we are completely free to choose not to be one, and God doesn't overrule that, despite the fact that Jesus prayed that to him. Why did Jesus pray the prayer at all then? Surely it has to be because he's sending a message to us. I think he's saying to us very clearly, look guys, look at this one thing I'm praying here. This is absolutely the most important thing for you to focus on. And we might think, well, hang on a minute, Jesus. Isn't preaching the gospel more important than unity? Look at why he says he wants us to be one. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And it seems that our unity somehow leads directly to people being saved. How could that work? Why do you think people in your particular community are not more open to the gospel? What would your answer be if I asked you that? Why are more people becoming Christians in your area? I suspect you might point out to me that the techniques that people are using for evangelism could be improved. I'm sure that's right. You might point out to me that there aren't enough workers going out into the harvest field or we're not praying enough for workers to go out into the harvest field. That would also be a valid reason, I'm sure. And there'd be a number of other valid reasons. But we, most of us, have grown up with the Western worldview, which predisposes us to overlook the reality of the spiritual world. So we tend to overlook perfectly clear verses like 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, which says this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I think you could compare that with Psalm 133, which starts by saying this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And it concludes, just a couple of verses later, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, which is a spiritual thing, even life forevermore. See, there's more going on than just preaching the gospel to someone intellectually and hoping for an intellectual response. There's the reality of the spiritual world. And every community is a potential harvest field. But we need to have the light of Christ shining there in order for the seeds to grow. Satan wants to keep it in darkness. But it seems to me that you can infer from those passages and others that as the church repents of its sin and as it works as one body, the one body that it actually is, of course, Satan can't do that, or at least not so effectively. The light will come in. He can't keep them in darkness so much. And the result of that is going to be that more people will respond to the gospel as the workers are sent out into the harvest field, as we do all those other good things that we need to do. Repentance and unity, in other words, change the spiritual atmosphere in some way, I think. Well over 35 years ago now, I had a compulsion one evening to pray into the night and ask God what was on his heart. Um, and I said, I said to God, I'm not actually going away, God, until I hear this. And I think it, I prayed two or three hours, and I got a very clear impression of two images in my mind, one after the other. I haven't experienced anything like that since. 
But in the first, there was a huge field of wheat, like massive, ready to be harvested. And in one corner, there was a guy with a handheld blade working to harvest this wheat. And he worked and he worked and he worked, but he hardly made any impression, of course, because it was massive, this field. It was obvious he was only going to get a tiny potential. Then I saw that back in the farmyard, there was a brand new combine harvester, one of these great big machines that could have done the whole job in a couple of hours, but it couldn't be used because it was in pieces. The parts were just scattered all over the farmyard. Then, then a second image, it was a picture of a huge gushing waterfall coming over a cliff, a massive amount of water. But the riverbed at the bottom was dry. And because no water was flowing out into the desert around it, it remained a desert, nothing was growing. And then as I looked, the reason that the water wasn't flowing anywhere was that there were these massive cracks and it was just disappearing down into the cracks. And I remember saying, well, what do you want me to do? And I saw some of these little cracks kind of join up a little bit, get filled in, and some of the water start trickling down the riverbed and a few little plants start growing. And I felt that God was giving me a very clear message at that time. I understood it immediately, uh, which was that if God's people are not working together, we will only ever reach a tiny part of a potential harvest. And even though God is pouring his spirit upon us, already this will have no great effect unless we are genuinely united. Otherwise, it disappears between the cracks. You know, we can pray to God to save people. We can pray for him to send his spirit on us or pray for him to send revival. And I think God would say, well, actually, I'm asking you to send revival. I've already given you everything you need. I'm already pouring out my spirit. But if you are choosing not to work together, there's nothing more I can do in the way that things are set up. And Paul's instruction to us is this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This isn't easy, but it is crucial. And in this session, we want to look at how we can play our part to maintain the unity of the spirit, whether that's just in our own family, in our friendship group, in our own church fellowship, amongst the various ethnic groups where we live, or in the wider church family in our area. 1 John 4.19 says this, we love because he first loved us. Matthew 10.8, we give freely because we've received freely. Luke 6.36, we are merciful because he has been merciful to us. Ephesians 4.32 says, we forgive in the same way that Jesus has forgiven us. And I think this is really all about understanding how God comes to us and then deciding to go to our brothers and sisters in just the same way. And if we do that, we're not going to go too far wrong. A lot of this is about our own relationship with God. Do you remember when Isaiah was praying in the temple and he saw a vision of God seated on a throne, high and exalted, it says. If that happened to you, what would go through your mind? Would you immediately start thinking of how other people had let you down and their shortcomings. I think you'd do what Isaiah did. He cried out, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. You'd immediately look at yourself, wouldn't you? 
In Luke 5, similar thing. Peter has been fishing all night, not caught a single thing, and this unknown guy turns up and says, go out into some deep water, let down the nets, and you catch some fish. Strangely, I think, he obeys. And suddenly, he's pulling in fish after fish after fish after fish. This does not happen. And Peter suddenly realises somebody very special is in the boat with him. How does he respond? Go away from me, Lord, I'm married to a sinful woman. No, he doesn't say that. But he does say, I'm a sinful man. In other words, when we see God for who he is, we don't become aware of the theological shortcomings of others or of their own sin. We become aware of our own sin. But when, when we're lukewarm in our relationship with God, we tend to overlook our own sin and focus on the sin of others and want to point it out to them. I wonder if you are as convinced as I am as to the paramount importance of being genuinely united with our brothers and sisters in Christ at a heart level, so that the world may know that God sent Jesus. Let's use this time to explore what it means practically to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, so that we can become the answer to Jesus' prayer. I don't know about you, but what comes naturally to me as a wife is to feel the responsibility to point out my husband's faults, with the best of intentions, of course, looking after his best interest. Because if I don't do it, who else will? Is that the responsibility God has given me towards him, towards others? Let's look at this passage. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And yes, each servant is responsible to his own master. It's not for us to judge someone else's character because it's none of our business. A growing disciple is someone who's becoming more and more like Jesus in character. No one else can do that for us, and we can't do it for someone else. I'm sure it doesn't happen to you, but I also get tired of having to remind my husband that he should be meeting my needs. Well, at least give me a little credit. I don't expect him now to intuitively know what my needs are, like I did in our first year of marriage. I've given him a list. <laughs> don't I have the right to expect this from others? Well, let's look at another passage. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Ouch. So not only do I have no right to expect my need to be met by others, I have a responsibility to meet their needs. Remember I told you about our three consecutive transatlantic moves? Well, the Lord gave me the passage we just read on Good Friday, as I knelt before the cross, considering the third move in less than three years. 
My husband wanted to move. I didn't. I liked our life in Barcelona. I could envision a good future for us there. But God was asking me to relinquish my wishes in favor of Rob's best interest. And so we moved to the desert. So our responsibilities can be summed up as developing our own character and meeting the needs of others. I don't always get it right as a wife or in my other relationships, but I think as mothers, we understand this well. We assume the role of serving and meeting our children's needs, and we assume it selflessly and with joy, don't we? Can we extend that to all our relationships? One of the biggest things that I, that I learned uh, just through the steps, of, uh, the steps to freedom in Christ was really an area of my life that I didn't truly understand that I was struggling with, although it was later, God later revealed to me how much I was struggling with it, and it really was, was pride. Um, things like, you know, thinking that somehow my needs and my wants are more important than uh, my employees or my wife or other family members or friends, uh, thinking that I didn't really have time to invest in others because what I'm doing is important, or thinking that, you know what, I'm more concerned about other people's performance at their job or in life compared with, well, how am I doing? How am I in my walk with, uh, with the Lord? And really, it's helped me tremendously just in work, which I'm a, a pediatric dentist and have a very large staff. And all these things, in one way or another, were contributing to not having as good of a work environment as we could have because I wasn't really putting the emphasis on others that I, that I needed to be. And I wasn't loving them and caring for them and showing the interest in them that I really needed to. And when God showed me that, hey man, you, are, you really have a pride issue here, suddenly it helped me to put the focus on on him, put the focus on others, and to to realize that um, you know by caring for others more, by doing things for others more, and being invested in people, that's really helping to show his love and what what he is really all about. It goes against the grain, this divine way of relating. In every relationship, we have rights and we also have responsibilities. Where should we put the emphasis? On our responsibilities or on our rights? Take a Christian marriage, for example. It's true that the Bible tells, tells wives to submit to their husbands. And a husband might claim that as his right. But he's also given a corresponding responsibility to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And that's a high calling. Which should he emphasize, his right or his responsibility? A wife may nag her husband because she thinks she has a right to expect him to be the spiritual head of the household. It's true that he's been given that calling by God. She, on the other hand, has been given a responsibility to love and respect her husband. Where should she put her emphasis? 
on the right or on her responsibility? What about parents? Should they focus on their right to expect their children to be obedient or on their responsibility to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord and discipline them when they are disobedient? Does being a member of a local church give you the right to criticize others or to tear someone apart because of their doctrine? Or does it give you a responsibility to submit to those in authority over you and to relate to others with the same love and acceptance that Jesus has shown to you? When we stand before Jesus at the end of our earthly lives, where will he put the emphasis? Will he say to me, Nancy, did those guys give you everything they should have? Or will he focus on how well I love those he put in my care? As a missionary, after many tears and heartbreaks, I finally learned to love and serve people without expecting anything in return. And you know what? It was liberating. Instead of constantly being disappointed by others, I was truly and pleasantly surprised when people served me and loved me. It became a gift. Learning not to focus constantly on the failings of others and choosing to think well of them is so much easier in the long run. It's better than always feeling you've been let down and badly treated. Okay, so we're to focus on our own character and responsibilities and think well of others. But what about when other people go wrong? Do we just ignore it? Now, think for a minute about the last time you went wrong yourself. How easy did you find it to apologize to someone you offended? Did you even apologize properly or did you say something like, I'm sorry if what I said offended you. I didn't know you were so sensitive. What does that actually mean? In effect, you're saying, what I said was perfectly reasonable and you shouldn't have taken offense. A proper apology takes responsibility for what you did. I'm really sorry I spoke like that. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Most of us do eventually get to the point where we're honest about our failings, but it can take a real struggle, can't it? And that's very important to keep in mind when we consider alerting other people to their failings. It's true that we can often see the issues in someone else's life much more clearly than they can. But biblically, whose responsibility is it to be the conscience of another person and to persuade them of their sin, which as we've seen is no easy task. That's not your role. It's the role of the Holy Spirit. You can be sure that the Holy Spirit is on duty. He's not asleep, and he's already gently convicting them. They're already engaged in an internal battle with him. But at the moment we try to intervene and point out the sin, they start to have that struggle with us instead of him, and that's not fun. Well. Leave it to the Holy Spirit to tell them their failings? Yes. But haven't I been given the ministry of condemnation? No. 
God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. But doesn't love expose a multitude of sins? No, Peter wrote. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Every time I hear this teaching, I realize just how easy it is for me to do the exact opposite of what God wants me to when it comes to relating to other people. Naturally, I really do want to sort out their character and point out why they should be meeting my needs. Let's spend some time unraveling our thinking on those issues. So my parents got divorced when I was 11 years old. And at the time that that happened, I'm a very extroverted person and I have a younger sister who is a very introverted person. And so we experienced that life event of parental divorce really differently. And I felt like as the older sister and as the more people person that I really had this responsibility to care for her. And so I took that on and um, really to an unhealthy level, although I didn't realize it for years. And so I struggled a lot when she moved across the country and went to college somewhere where I couldn't watch her every day and be with her and, and I worried about her a lot and then um, you know years later she got married and I experienced those same feelings of oh I don't know if I can let him take care of her I really like feel that she's my responsibility and I really need to be with her and make sure that she's okay and so you know years after that I was going through the Freedom in Christ material um, and really was praying through some stuff and reflecting on and I feel like I heard God say you can let this go. I am in charge of her. I am taking care of her. You don't need to feel this pressure and you don't need to try to control this relationship that another person has with anyone. So that's really what I got out of it is just that feeling of relief and a freedom to just let that go and let her be. You know, almost daily there's opportunities for me to see something and see that tendency in myself to want to make things okay, which is um, not possible and it's sort of a crazy thought, but uh, just to allow myself, oh yeah, God is in control of this and I don't have to do this myself. The discipleship course has helped me in all the other roles in my life, as a mother, as a wife, as a friend, as a daughter, because I am secure in Christ because I get my significance and my acceptance from Christ. And I do not seek to get my significance, for example, from my husband. I know that my significance is in Christ. And because of that, it releases him from the responsibility of living up to, you know, to a certain standard or trying to meet certain needs that can only be met by God. The other thing that I learned in Freedom in Christ that helped me in my relationships is knowing what my responsibility is in a relationship and what the other person's responsibility is in that relationship. And to focus more on my responsibilities rather than my rights. To know that in my relationships, God calls me to be the best mother that I can be and not necessarily to have perfect children. Yeah? To be the best wife that I can be and not necessarily um, to have the best husband or to mold my husband into something that I want him to be. Now Nancy reminded us that it's the role of the Holy Spirit 
to convict people of their sin. And Jesus was clear that we shouldn't judge others. However, Paul does talk about disciplining Christians who do wrong. For example, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, how can we reconcile the fact that we are told not to judge, but we are also to carry out discipline? Judgment and discipline are two different things. Judgment is always related to character. However, discipline is always related to behavior. Discipline has to be based on something that we've seen or heard. If we have personally observed another Christian sinning, the Bible tells us to confront that person alone. The objective is to win them back to God. If they don't repent, then we are to take two or three witnesses who have observed the same sin. If they still won't repent, then we are to tell the church. Now, the purpose of this process is to not to condemn them, but to restore them to Jesus. However, if there are no witnesses, just your word against theirs, the best thing for you to do is just leave it right there. God knows all about it. He will deal with it in his perfect time and wisdom. It's his job to bring conviction, not yours. As humans, we often are tempted to judge a person's character. Now, suppose I catch a fellow Christian telling an obvious lie, and I confront them about it. I could say, you're a liar, but that would be judgment, because I have questioned their character. It would be much better to say, you're not a liar. So why did you just say something that's not true? That calls their attention to their behavior, not their character. The truth is, he is a child of God who just acted out of character, like the prince who acted like the frog. The first expression implies that he has a character of a liar and implies that he can't change. The second expression says nothing about his character. It simply calls out a behavior issue and leaves plenty of room to change. If you point out someone's sinful behavior to them, you are giving them something they can work with. Calling someone a liar or stupid or clumsy or proud or evil is an attack on their character. There is also a major difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment is related to the Old Testament concept of paying evil for evil, an eye for an eye. It looks at the past behavior of a person. Now, growing up in the African-American church, I always felt that God was out to punish me. I felt like God was already, he was always ready to stop me from having any type of fun. If I went to the movies, I would get punished. If I didn't go to church, I would get punished. If I listened to any other music other than gospel music, I would get punished. Now, as a result, I concluded that God was mean and ready to punish me for everything, which really didn't help my relationship with him at all. Here's the good thing. I now understand that God isn't looking down on earth ready to punish us, and we don't have to punish other people. The punishment we all deserved fell on Christ. However, God will discipline us to develop our character so that we don't continue to make the same mistakes. Now, a parent may find it easier not to discipline a child who refuses to share his cake. But Hebrews 12 tells us that God's discipline is a proof of his love and is the same with us. 
Hebrews 12, 11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The parent will get their reward when they see their child has learned how to share. And the child will be, of course, better for it. Discipline looks forward to the future. So the point of discipline is to help produce a harvest of righteousness and peace, to become more like Jesus, not to punish us for behaving badly. We should be grateful that we don't have a God who punishes us. Instead, we have a God who loves us so much that he sometimes makes the hard choice to allow us to go through tough circumstances in order to prepare us for the future and to help us become more and more like Jesus in our character. Well, what about when the shoe is on the other foot? How do you respond when someone attacks us? Should we be defensive? Well, certainly we'll be tempted to. Look at how Jesus reacted when it happened to him. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he did not make threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We have to do the same thing. We don't need to defend ourselves anymore. If you're wrong, you don't have a defense. If you're right, you don't need a defense. Christ is your defense. We need to entrust ourselves to God and leave the outcome to him. Now, I remember when Neil Anderson was telling a story about when he was a pastor. A woman came to his church and made an appointment to see him. She wanted to discuss a list of good and bad points about him that she had written. There were just two good points and a whole page of bad ones. When she read each point, he was tempted to defend himself, but he kept quiet. When she, would, when she finished, he said to her, it must have taken a lot of courage to share that list with me. What do you suggest I do? At that point, she started crying and said, oh, it's not you, it's just me. That led to a positive discussion that helped her out a lot. Now, what would have happened if he would have de defended himself? She probably would have been more convinced that she was right. If you can learn not to be defensive when someone exposes your character defects or attacks your performance, you may have the opportunity to turn the situation around and minister to that person. It's really important to understand that nobody tears down another person from a position of strength. Those who are critical of others are either hurting or immature. If we're secure in our own identity in Christ, we can learn not to be defensive when people attack us. Let me read to you a poem that expresses how we can be the person that God has created us to be no matter what other people in the world may say or throw at us. Let me read this to you. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. 
Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest people with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest people with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs, but follow only top dogs. Fight for the underdog anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you've got, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you've got anyway. Now, Romans 12, 18 says this. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. The crucial phase is as far as it depends upon you. Conflict is a normal part of life. It's nothing to be feared. You won't always have a happy, harmonious relationship with other people. It's how you handle it that matters. So are you willing to do the as far as it depends upon you stuff? Are you ready to lay down your preferences and your prejudices and come to see others the way God sees you? Are you willing to commit yourself to the unity of the body of Christ so that you can be a part of the answer to Jesus' prayer? If so, bow your heads and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not judge me, but Christ took the punishment that I deserved upon himself so that I would not have to. Thank you for your love for me and that you disciplined me to help me produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. Thank you that you helped me to learn to love others even when they have done me wrong or when I've done others wrong. Thank you that in Christ, I now have the opportunity to live at peace with everyone. I choose to commit to walk in the unity with the body of Christ so that the world may know that you sent Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We have some homework for you this week in your participant's guide. is a questionnaire entitled, What Do I Believe? It will be helpful if you can complete that before next time. Thank you for joining us. Isn't it great that we don't serve a God who is ready to punish us? Instead, we have a God who loves us so much that he sometimes makes the hard choice of allowing us to go through difficult circumstances in order to prepare us for the future and to help us become more and more like Jesus so that we can be fruitful, so that our lives really will count. Let's reflect on how God comes to us so that we can go to others in exactly the same way.